Hi, Brandis and Bear listeners. Uh, welcome to another episode of the podcast. You will notice the uh, silence as Melanie is not with us, but she is on her way. It's the first time she's ever been late for a podcast. So I'm going to introduce our guest. Of course, they won't know that, right? Because whenever they listen to the podcast, it'll be like right mm. on time, right? No, they'll know. No, they'll know. know. Well, they'll know now. Yeah. So right. the voice you're hearing is Raven. Raven, how are you? How do you feel? Uh, joining us on the Venus and Bear podcast. We are delighted to have you here. How do I feel yeah. joining you? I, 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 fine, fine. I, I Only fine? You're not ecstatic? No, ecstatic, ecstatic, Cause jubilant. I, I saw, um, I was looking through our messages over Facebook and you said you had to listen to the podcast and we have a new fan, so. You do, yeah. Yeah. Right. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, I am so delighted that you are here because you are the one of the first spoken word poets I've ever seen. When I first started getting into spoken word, um, I saw you down in the basement of the International at the Monday Echo. Oh so God, when was that? That was about five years ago. Jesus. So I feel like I know you longer than you probably know me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I like officially met you uh, when we were judging the uh, Manute Slam. Really? Was that really? Was that the first time we met? I feel like it's the first time we officially met. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Actually. Wow. Yeah. But it's weird because I feel like I know you longer. We've been within each other's gravitational fields. Yeah, it's strange. Friends and very listeners, I will have to apologize because I currently am suffering from a chest infection. So I will sound like an adolescent for the duration of this episode. Um, but don't worry, Melanie's sweet voice will be joining us very soon. Could but, be worse, you could sound like Tom Waits. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, be well, a good thing. I've, I've been told that um, when I do have a cold, um, I give the best performances because my voice has that kind of rusky... Raspy sort of... Yeah, yeah ras- I was meant to say raspy thing. and husky, but it came out as rusky. Rusky? You sound like a Russian, really. Yeah. <laughs> I am sounding Russian when I have cold. Yeah, that's it. It's good. <clears throat> so uh, all the Russians are hating me right now. That was awful. <laughs> Never get me doing accents. I mean, I'd be surprised if we did have any Russian listeners. But that would be cool. No, if you are a Russian listener, please complain so at least <laughs> know. we know you're listening. Um, so for those of you who do not know who Raven is, I'm going to do a little brief introduction for you guys. So Raven is a multidisciplinary artist writer, performer, filmmaker, and arts educator, originally from San Francisco, California, now living in Dublin. 15 years now. 15 years. In that is smoke. That is incredible. Uh, what drew you to Ireland? Oh, God, I moved for love, best of reasons. My wife is, uh, is Scottish and I, she grew up in Scotland, um, but her dad's from Donegal. And uh, after she left Scotland, she was about 17, uh, went to college here in Dublin and uh, then moved to the States, which is where we met. And she said she'd always wanted to live back in Dublin because uh, she had very fond memories of it. It was her first time away from home. And like a fool, I'd spent my entire life in San Francisco, and I just opened up my mouth and said, I'll go with you. <laughs> Never lived anywhere else in my life and was was definitely not prepared for the shock of, of moving somewhere else. I think a lot of times when, when people make moves like that, you know, leave country, what have you, they do it when they're younger. Yeah. I did it when I was... Uh, when I was almost 40, I was 39, 
wow. when I did it. Uh, what, I'm 53 now. I'll be 54 this year. Yeah. I mean, I'm um, being prodded by my parents because they say, oh, once you hit 25, you'll never want to leave. But I mean... <laughs> You you're never the exception know. to the rule. You really never know where you're going to end up. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things that I've sort of found where no matter, we can plan all sorts of things, but we never really know where our lives are going to go. And since the move, I've come to realize that uh, that I could be anywhere. You know, I could be doing anything. I have no idea where I'm going to be in, in 10 years. I may be here. I may be, I don't know, in South Africa or, or, or I don't know, God knows where. Um, well, I just said South Africa. was actually love South Africa. I've been there twice. You must love Ireland if you've stayed here for 15 years. I love my wife and I love my friends. I don't always <laughs> love Ireland. Um, and, and I'll tell you why. It, because, and, and this actually relates to, to one of the pieces that, that I'm going to do later. Um... When I moved here, see, Angie loves Ireland. She loves Dublin. When she moves, moved to Dublin, um, it was in the 80s, um, and Dublin was being itself. You know, Dublin, at its heart, is a good working-class city. Mm. And when I moved here, it was right in the middle of the Celtic Tiger, and Dublin was a phony, quite frankly. Dublin was wearing a lot of garish makeup and high heels that it could barely walk in, <laughs> And it seemed like a phony to me, and I never got to love Dublin as it was in, you know, the rare old days. Mm. Um, so I've had a problem with it. And also, you know, I realized I'm a San Francisco homeboy. Yeah. I moved halfway around the world to realize that I don't actually belong anywhere else. When I get back home on home soil, it's like I can feel that, that California energy vibrating up from the earth up through the soles of my feet, and it just invigorates me. As a matter of fact, I'm planning to go back home soon. I haven't been back in about a year or so. Um, so I don't always love it here. There are times when, when I do. I love the uh, I love the Royal Canal. Actually, I've walked yeah. it all times of, of day or night. And I feel like it belongs to me. Um, it's a difficult place. It really is. Um, yeah. it I can, mean, I, I can't really say anything to the contrary, but no, I can see what you're saying. I mean, I've lived here my whole life, and while I love it to bits, there are just dip parts of it that, you know, are awful. Yeah, but it is an insanely beautiful country. It, it really is. is. And that's what yeah. makes me never want to leave. Like, I can go, you know, anywhere else, but once I'm coming home, I'm on the flight, and I can see mm -hmm. just almost the country coming out of the sea, and it's green, and it's that kind of green yeah. that you know you're home, and once you step, like, it can be freezing cold, and the rain <laughs> be spitting in your face, and horizontal, but your home, it's Ireland, you know what I mean? Because uh, my mom is very much like, why don't you leave? Like, everybody's going to Canada. Did like, she really? Wow. Yeah, yeah, she wants me to get out of the country, and I'm trying wow. not to take it personally. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, but I'm like, I'm a home bird. Like, the way you describe mm -hmm. San Francisco, that's how I feel when I'm in Ireland. Like, this is my home. I don't want to go anywhere. Like, for all its flaws, you know, we'll stick it out. It's love. Yeah. And as much as it changes, you know, San Francisco has changed a lot over the, the past several years. And as much as it changes, I still go home and I'm still home. You know, yeah. and I think that that everybody, uh, whether they feel it or not, has um, both a psychic and physical connection with the place that they're from. Mm. You know, we wear emotional, psychic and physical grooves to a place when we live in it for so long. And it's it's impossible to to deny that power. Um, some people can't wait to get away from home. Um, I think they still have a connection with it, but for whatever reason, they can't be there. Yeah. You know, um, for me, it's it's just the opposite. I, honestly, I would move home today 
if I could. Now, mind you, if I did, you know, all of the friends that I know here, the people in in the community of poets and uh, and others, I, I would miss them dearly. I'm not sure I could you, live without absolutely. them at this point, yeah. you know. Uh, if I did move back home, which is not actually happening, Angie never wants to live in the States again. <laughs> um, but if I did... I'd have to come back here regularly, yeah. You know, just yeah. uh, just to see the Dublin Massive, the Ireland Massive, really. And that's the thing too is that 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 being a poet in the states, um, it's almost impossible um, unless you're like a really big poet to really know the national scene. You know? Yeah, I can imagine that because Ireland it feels big. Like it feels like the scene is quite big once you step out of Dublin, but I can't imagine what it's like. In America. Well, it is a big scene. And it's funny because, you know, you talk to uh, the poetry scene here is huge now. Yeah. But when you you can talk to people who aren't into poetry, uh, you know, aren't into spoken word. And I like to call it the biggest scene that that you've never heard of. Yes. Because, uh, you know, I've said to people, yeah, poetry is big here. And people are like, poetry, really? Where is it happening? What? Yeah. Oh, where yeah. is it under this table? Um, but... In a country this size, you know, Ireland is about a fifth the size of California, my home mm. state. Um, it's 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 easily uh, possible to to know the national scene, to perform on the national scene because it's not so big. Yeah. So so that's a good thing. You know, I've had opportunities here as a poet that I might not have had back home, and that includes you know doing things like like festivals all yeah. over the place and, you, and performing all over the country. You mentioned um, you went to South Africa. You performed in South Africa, didn't yeah. you? Well, the first time I was in South Africa was in 1998, yeah. and it was four years after uh, apartheid was dismantled, and um, I, was, uh, I was a filmmaker. Um, I'm still a filmmaker, but uh, and um, I grew up in, uh, in a very radical leftist household. Uh, my folks are, are both activists for, for social justice and, and, and labor justice and, uh, and quite radical. And like, for example, I would, uh, I remember calling my, my folks up. I hadn't talked to them about a month and asked what they had been up to. They'd asked me what I'd been up to and I'd been at some protest or something and, uh, and I asked them what they had been up to and they said, oh, we just got back from Cuba delivering medical supplies. And I was like, Jesus wow. Christ, and this is before it was legal to go to Cuba. Yeah. Um, I was like, you couldn't outdo them. They were really quite incredible. Yeah. And uh, what was the point of this? I lost the whole thread of this story. South Africa. South you Africa. Were there four so years they after. were, and they're also, uh, and I grew up in that that spirit of creative protest where we had things like uh, like the Freedom Song Network, yeah. network, which my folks were, were members of. They're both professional singers. Um, and uh, Wise Fool Puppet Theater and, and all these sorts of things. So, so it was always... creativity runs in the blood. It does, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of didn't have a choice, really. <laughs> um, and it was always part of my understanding that, that, that we dedicate our, our arts in the service of something, something bigger. Yeah. You know? Um, so they were members of, uh, while apartheid was still going on, uh, South African in, in exile, James Matalope Phillips, uh, formed uh, several choirs in, uh, in a few cities around the world and taught them the South African freedom songs in support of the anti-apartheid movement. Um, South Africa has a huge choral tradition, these huge choirs. Uh, a lot of them are gospel choirs. Uh, some of them are political um, and uh, so James Montalope Phillips uh, formed several such choirs in, in cities around the world. And my folks were member, uh, members of the ones, one in San Francisco called Vukani Mwetu, which uh, means uh, people arise. 
And in 98, they got an opportunity to travel to South Africa and perform there in several festivals, um, nice. including South African Women's Day, which, yeah. uh, where uh, Winnie Mandela was the keynote speaker. She was absolutely incredible. But um, a friend of the family's, um, John Fromer, who's since passed away, he was an absolutely remarkable man, and I, uh, I consider him a mentor of mine. He, um, he knew I was, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd been making some films. Uh, I'd been playing around with film, and he asked me I'd be, if I'd be interested in shooting this documentary on, on the choir. So in 98, we traveled to South Africa. I followed 27 people around. Was it 27 of them? Something like that. 20-some-odd people around uh, for two weeks and had an absolutely amazing experience. And then several years ago, back in, what was it, 2014, was it? 2016, I can't remember. I've got the worst <laughs> sense of time. Honestly, time doesn't run in a line yeah, for me. There, it's all just one big ball of floating deep. Yourself and three other poets. It was Paul Casey, yeah. um, Africa McGlinchey, and um, uh, oh God, why am I? Uh, Billy Ramsell. Yeah. Um, all three of them incredible poets, and two of them with an African connection. Paul Casey lived in South Africa and Zimbabwe for a while, and. Uh, um, Africa uh, lived in Zimbabwe. She might have spent some time in South Africa as well. Yeah. So uh, Paul got it together, got the funding and all of that, and off we went to uh, uh, Poetry Africa in Durban, and it was an absolutely incredible experience. Did you did you get to experience um, a kind of spoken word scene that was there, or was there? Oh God, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was a huge uh, poetry festival with poets from all over the country, and the quality of the poets at the festival there were absolutely incredible so much so that i was intimidated i called angie at one point and says i don't know what i'm doing here everybody's so damn good this is the other thing and she just said to me you wouldn't be there standing amongst them if you weren't as good mm. um but it was an absolutely incredible experience and some of it was uh, you know there were poems being uh, being performed in in languages i didn't understand but you don't lose it. Like even you don't. even when you're at a performance and you don't actually understand the language, you don't lose it. With a really good performer, yeah. you don't. Someone who yeah. is able to carry across the the emotion yeah. and, and power of a piece, um, you're losing you know meaning obviously because you don't understand uh, the, the language, but but you get a sense of of what it's about, mm. and um, and it was incredible. Yeah, I would love to go back. With that, um, would you like to introduce your first poem? Mm, sure. Um, let's start off with, I'll start personal, and then we'll go uh, political. I, uh, I'll be 54 this year, and um, you would think to, to look at me, listen to me, that I was all grown up, but I'm finding that I'm telling a coming-of-age story yeah. at 53 years old when really that should have been done when, when I was a boy. But uh, I don't know how to get into this um, because a lot of it's very personal. A lot of it uh, prompted a lot of the new writing. But um, as amazing and remarkable as my parents were, um, I had a very difficult relationship with my dad. He was a, uh, he was a brutal and, and abusive drunk. Um, I realized years later actually as an adult, that I only knew when he was really wasted. As it turns out, he actually had a good buzz going on most of the time. 
he worked on the docks in San Francisco and he was a shipping clerk. So he knew where all the good booze was and he was constantly just lifting booze, bringing it home, hiding it all over the place. You know, my mom would find it and get rid of it and he'd find it again. But he was very abusive towards me. And it wasn't until years later because I masked a lot of... Uh, a lot of my feelings with with drugs. I was a heavy drug user when I was uh, when I was younger. When I was in my twenties, um, lived to tell the tale. Thank God. Yeah. Um, but uh, you overcame it. I did well. You know, uh, I survived. What you're I survived the you're only way that I knew how. You're credit to yourself. And thank you. I got to the point where several years ago, um, it all started coming to a head. And it was really debilitating. I I started having incredible like anxiety attacks. I still have them. And I started just realizing I need to do something about it. And I actually realized I needed to do something about it when it started invading my stagecraft. My stage is is my safe spot. Yeah. It's my power spot. It's the it's the one place that I own and I always feel confident. I may go on stage nervous, but I'm I'm confident up there. I own that space. When it started invading, invading my stagecraft, I started thinking, I need to do something about this, and got into therapy. I'm in therapy right now. Um, but the wonderful thing is that usually when I would go through periods like that, it would shut me down, and it would shut down all creativity. This time it did exactly the opposite. I couldn't stop writing, and it prompted a lot of new pieces. And whereas before I would write uh, in a very political vein, um, suddenly things got very personal and they came down to what was going on uh, with my feelings in my head, um, you know, my spirit. And it's a lovely thing to be able to bring these things out. It's a very difficult thing, but our experiences are, everybody has common experiences. And what I hope is that with the new pieces, that these things will strike a, a resonant chord with people who, who have the same experiences and that, well, that my experience can possibly help other people. Your story, um, listening to you, it's already resonated with me and I can't wait for the listeners to hear the poem now. But, um, so it's called The Boy Is Gone and it's based on this idea. Um, I was talking to my friend uh, and uh, uh, storyteller, uh, actress Nicole Rourke, and she had been in conversation with another friend of ours who was going through a lot of similar things that I am and um, you know, basically feeling like, like a boy in a man's body, like he hadn't completely grown. And she reminded him that of uh, a science that every seven years um, we regenerate all of ourselves. Yeah. So literally the person that we were is no more. And she said to him, the boy is gone. And that stuck with me and that became the title and the impetus for the piece. All right, let's hear it. The boy is gone. He has returned to places he's never left, expecting to find himself there, though he never is. The boy is gone. He's retraced steps, found remnants of swaddling spun into adult clothes in the needle shards. In such a rage you broke my mirror, he cried, my only mirror, leaving me reflectionless, dressed ridiculous, all armored in vigilance, leaving me not only afraid of my shadow, but of the light which cast it so long. 
For everyone since has unwittingly worn your jackal skin, whilst I've spent lifetimes squeezing in to one where rip, pop, go the buttons in fits, because the boy is gone. Stitch by stitch, undone. Cell by cell, replaced. Line by line, erased, till no trace remained save that upon the heart indelible, where the nib cuts, where the weld tears tipped and spilled cross frantic rewrites unblottable, and he's tried, opening with these lines. Please tell me. Tell me the true beauty is more than skin deep. Tell me that the boy is gone. That what was Bible true in flesh is palimpsest, overwritten, smitten like bells in another frequently, frequency, cell by cell replaced as beads somehow fallen from the unbroken thread of a story oft retold, writ with borrowed reference upon skin, paper thin, that never refused ink and feared it would not live to tell the tale. Please don't tell it again. Tell me instead that he can burn so hot that he leaves no ash, that he can conjure phantom limbs in dandling race from old haunts, that this incarnation makes a fist in its chrysalis and comes out fighting. Tell me that he hasn't built a temple of the brickbats fired at him, that what is remembered does not engender. Tell me that he can staunch this bleeding and still the violently vibrating marrow. Tell me that he will finally ask the shadow he cannot lose to dance with him. Tell me that the boy is gone. Right. Thank you so much for that poem. Um, yeah, no, that has really resonated with me. Um, I have recently started going to therapy mm. and myself. And um, as my therapist has said, you know, I should have been going a long time ago because you kind of trick yourself into thinking, well, there's a lot more people worse off than me. But again, mm -hmm. Um, once you start thinking about you, yourself and I, it's, you know, you have to stop focusing on the world around you and start focusing on you as a person. And I found my own poetry getting a lot more personal um, because there are things that scare, they're scary, they're scared, like they're scary things to kind of um, come face to face with. Oh, God. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, you know, Ophelia McCabe? I MC Ophelia, uh, she's absolutely incredible. She was actually, uh, she's a friend of mine. She is an absolutely inspiration to me. I think she's actually one of the the best rappers in this country. Yeah. Um, if if you haven't heard her or seen her perform, definitely. If you see her name anywhere, um, uh, MC Ophelia, you have to see her. She's absolutely amazing. But she, uh, you know, she was going through a lot of stuff, and uh, right before um, a mixtape show. Uh, you know, we would sort of sit and we'd have some good conversations. And uh, she said to me, she just tapped her temple and she said, yeah, I went up to this neighborhood last night on my own and got mugged. It's a very dangerous place inside our heads. And I think that's why therapy is valuable, because sometimes we need a guide. Sometimes we need someone to sort of walk us through that neighborhood. Yes. Um, you know, that's a really good way to describe it, um, because my big thing at the moment is I can't cry. I can't cry in front of people mm. and I'm sitting there and she's like, she's so good at her job that, you know, she's bringing me to the brink and she, I just swallow it and I'm like, I'm, really? not, I'm not going into that neighborhood. And she's like, I will, I will guide you. You, mm -hmm. you let me bring you and I will bring you to, to the other side and you mm -hmm. will be fine. And it's like, ah, oh, don't have the courage, but you explaining it or as she explains it as a neighborhood. That's just, that has stuck in my head now. Yeah, yeah. I cry weekly, copiously. Yeah. I at least once a week in, in, in therapy and in, in, in sometimes more often. So, yeah, it's a good thing. <laughs> it, it's, 
it's meant to be a good thing. It's meant to be so natural. And there's me thinking, oh, look at me. Like I can write all this poetry and the poetry is worth nothing if it doesn't actually tell my story. See, and this is the thing, too. Like when we write, um, you know, I can write all of these things and it sounds like I know what I'm talking about. And but oh, I'm, I'm the best I'm not... bluffer you'll ever meet. Right, right, <laughs> right. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a prophet. I'm not a, a wise man. I, I'm not not anything. When I write these things. You know, I write them to understand something myself. I write them because I'm grappling with them and still trying to make make sense of them. Yeah. You know, if I write about sort of like like a certain type of serenity, it's not because I know it. It's because I'm reaching for it. It's because I'm trying to to find it. Because I can write and speak about these things doesn't mean I I understand them any better. Yeah. It means that I just I I have a voice and and I can articulate them, so that possibly somebody else can can grapple with them or get hold of them. Years ago, uh, we were talking about this earlier, I used to run a night called Tongue Box, and it was yeah. called Tongue Box because, um, do you know the movie Barbarella? Yes. Um, in Barbarella, uh, Barbarella wears this device on her wrist called a Tongue Box, and it's used to translate uh, alien languages. And poetry is my translator. It's my way of translating the world. I don't understand this world unless I can filter it through that. And by filtering it through that, um, because we're 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 subject to so many influences from different people and from the media and this that and the other thing, and I'm a very simple mind, mm. and 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 I take in a lot, and there's no way to sort of hold it all in my arms until I distill it down to something in a poem that's like a diamond or something small that I can hold in my hands and see and go that I understand. That makes sense. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, um, art has to have a purpose or there's a purpose in art. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read in an article you did with Poetry Potion years ago. Oh, wow. I you don't, you don't do slam poetry. No, no, I don't. Um, because it does two two things to me. Uh, because I I do get very nervous uh, before performances and during performances. Um, the added element of competition um, always throws off my performance, um, and I don't like to compete. I don't like competing against friends. Um, it just it, it throws me off. I have another purpose in what I'm doing, and it doesn't have anything to do with competition or winning a prize. That plus the fact that the three-minute limit, my stuff is getting longer. Mm. So that three-minute limit doesn't mean anything to me. I don't know how we can. And there are loads of people who can do it. They can encapsulate absolutely amazing things within that three-minute time period. I just... It just throws me off. I love a good slam. I love going to see a slam. And yeah. I love the, the, the competitive aspect of it. I just can't take part in it. Well, you are a master of mixing mediums. And I think you've been doing it a lot longer than people have kind of started to do. Like you've, you're seeing an emergence now in the spoken word scene of people starting to mix mediums. I think you've been doing that a lot longer than I've been doing it for a long time because I've been multidisciplinary. Yeah. Um, basically, I... I had to end up focusing on something. So I ended up focusing on on poetry and on on film. But, you know, throughout my life, it's been visual arts. I've been a professional graphic designer. I studied graphic design yeah. and film and fine art in uh, in college. 
I was uh, a painter for a while. I still yeah. love painting. I haven't what, painted in ages. While I was stalking you, the article I found was five years ago. And there's something that you said in the article was that um, it didn't have to be poetry or spoken word. It could be any visual form. If you have an idea, it's your way of interpreting the world and getting it out there. And some mediums are 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 better for expressing certain things, Yeah, you know? Um, and it's just a matter of uh, sometimes what I need to say is encapsulated in uh, in a single photo collage. Uh, sometimes it might be, uh, you know, a poem that runs for, for pages or what have you, but I like to keep it open. I like to, I like to choose the medium to fit the message. You are an award-winning videographer, aren't you? Mm, yeah, I, uh, that that film I made in South Africa that, that I, won that the I award. With, that that won me an Emmy. Yeah, an and, Emmy. And my, my film career has been going steadily downhill since. Oh then. no! <laughs> <laughs> but still, though, I started at the top <clears throat> and, and and sort of just like rolled downhill. That's really. still um, an incredible <laughs> award to win. That's fantastic. It shocked the hell out of me, you know. Yeah. And some of it comes down to. Um, you know, the producer of the film uh, worked for uh, for the public television station in in California uh, at the local one in San Francisco, and he knew how to how to get it in, and it was good enough to to win the award. It yeah. was up against one other film. It won uh, best uh, best cinematography or best photography, as they put it, for uh, a cultural cultural affairs program. Um, I wasn't even there to receive the award. No. Uh, honestly, I have been such a So you don't a have a trophy flick. sitting on your mantle? Oh, no, I have mantle? it. I have it. Uh, my parents accepted it for me. Um, but uh, I was actually sitting in, in Golden Gate Park having a picnic, and Angie said to me, what time is that award ceremony tonight? And I was just like, oh, God, I don't know. Well, it turned out I'd been getting all sorts of calls from the producer and from my parents saying, what? Raven, where the hell are you? What's going on now? So I rushed down there and got there in time for the reception, but I actually didn't get to step up on stage and, and receive the oh. award. But And for a while, actually, just, you know, typical of me sort of hiding my light under a bushel, I, I put it in a closet until Angie came over to my place one time and said, where's your Emmy? She's like, take that thing out. Put it up on the mantle somewhere. So, yeah. It, it actually sits outside uh, on a shelf in uh, in my house now. So you're an Emmy Award winner, and you also are a published poet. You have your collection. I have one collection called The Living, the Dead, and Americans. It was published by, uh, by Seven Towers. Um, there's a funny story behind the publication of that, yeah. but uh, <laughs> we might get around to that. But uh, yeah, and working on on book number two, which uh, hopefully will be uh, published by uh, by Liz McSkeen's uh, Tourist Press, uh, possibly this year, probably Obviously. next year. Uh, yeah, I'm a very slow writer, and I um, am. it takes me a long time to to get all this stuff together. So you um, you talk about your first collection, like you're kind of putting the poems to bed or putting them to rest. Hmm. Um, is that what the way you feel with your second collection? Or what poems? Or is it going to well, be similar? The second collection nature? is going to be different. The first collection was, was really uh, made up of poems that had been floating around for for like the last, you know, over the span of like 20 years. Yeah. And they'd been in my set and I'd been doing them over and over again. And you know how it is. You do things for, you do pieces over and over again. And finally you need to... You need to put them to bed. Yeah. You don't get tired. Uh, well, y you sometimes get tired of doing them. And the challenge becomes um, 
I'm sure you know yourself when uh, sometimes you can step up on stage and if you know a piece well enough, you can rattle it off without even thinking about it. Oh, yeah. And I definitely found myself with some of the older pieces. You know, I'm running my mouth and the whole time I'm thinking about something else. Yeah, the emotion is just disconnected from it. Yeah, and what I realize is that the challenge with a lot of older pieces, things that you know very well, is to bring that faith, that belief, and that passion for them to them every single time you perform them. Um, if you can't, then you probably shouldn't be doing them anymore. Yeah. But I, I kept them alive because they, they didn't have a resting place. Yeah. So now they have a place to, to rest. It's not a grave. It's a bed. It's a bed. It's they not stay a grave. There. Yeah. And, um, and it allowed me to move on to something else. Yeah. And with that, I would love to hear about your second poem. Ooh, the second one. Uh, Let's do Cry Baby. Um, How do I introduce this? I know. I am actually going to admit a secret. Ooh, an exclusive. That I've I've only admitted to a few people. Um, but now it's it's out there. So now it's it's all blown. I'm wearing my Batman shirt today. Um, I'm almost always wearing my Batman shirt. Mm-hmm. I'm wearing my Batman hoodie too, and um, I actually, for years, wanted to be a costume crime fighter. I was actually going to step out on the streets of Dublin as a costume crime fighter. Um, a vigilante. Uh, as a vigilante, I'm I'm a big comic book geek, but also um, I, I believe in that, that, that you know a certain amount of social responsibility that we all look out for each other. And uh, Crybaby came out of this idea that um, you're going to love our segment at the end of this podcast. We yeah? have two mm-hmm. questions and a demand. Ooh, you're going to ooh, love okay, okay. our question. I'm ready for it. Yeah. But um, continue, we'll Crybaby. Um, we're hardwired for empathy. Yes. Um, there's been some debate about the science, uh, but um, but as I as I typically introduce this poem in performances, um, we're hardwired for empathy uh, because it's how we've survived as a species. Mm. You know, not by being picked off one by one by predators, but by watching each other's backs. Mm. But we seem to have forgotten that, and it's uh, I believe it's because uh, human communities were never meant to be so large. Yeah. And when we start packing people into cities like we do. That natural hardwiring short circuits. There's a French word. It's not actually French. It's been um, turned into an English word. It's ennui. Ennui. Mm. Uh, you learn about it in um, economics, weirdly enough. Really? Yeah. I did philosophy mixed with economics. It was weird. Mm. But um, <laughs> I, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right, but that word of yeah. just isolation in a community or in a big city but yeah no you're 100% right yeah and we because we start believing that we can't possibly care for so many people yeah so we start bringing that 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 circle of care that circle of care gets smaller and we start only looking out for the people that we know but but we can do it we can actually care for everybody out there as long as we remember to meet people one on one and that's something that that i always try and do if uh, we start becoming blind to all sorts of things happening in the streets you know if i if i give some change to somebody who's tapping if i have the time i'll you know i'll sit down on the sidewalk with them for a while ask them how they're doing have they got a place to stay you yeah. know because that kind of human connection is so important and we we start losing that over time and I, I think it's time we start regaining it because if we don't then then this is what happens uh several years ago i saw um two guys beating uh 
beating this one guy down mercilessly down was on Dame this Street. In Dublin. This was Street. years and years ago. Yeah, and uh, I'd just been to a poetry night, and I convinced a couple of friends to to step in and and break it up. Yeah. Because quite frankly, because nobody was doing anything. People were walking by. It was a Wednesday night, and people were just walking by oh while this guy was getting God. the shit beat out of him. Um, because that's the point we've gotten to. Yeah. And it's really sad. But if we all look after each other, now I'm somebody who will step in, and Angie has said to me, you're going to get yourself killed like that one of these days. You're going to get yourself seriously hurt, but I can't yeah. help it. This is the way I was brought up. We don't stand by while people are, are being screwed over like that. Mm. You know? Um, so... This piece came out of that, that whole idea that, uh, that basically all that Bruce Wayne had as Batman was a lot of money yeah. and, and, and a passion to do what was right. Um, but we can all be what, we, what I call a, a working class Batman. You yeah. know, we can all do something. Now, some of us are going to step in, but uh, but if you don't feel safe with stepping in, you can you can you can call the cops or you can witness or you can yell or what have you. If everyone does one little thing to look out for for everybody else, then the thugs and the bullies don't run our streets. Yeah. So that's where this came from. Uh, it, it came from that. Uh, that understanding that uh, that there are people hurting around us and, and and we can't ignore it. So the poem is called Crybaby. It's called Crybaby Two, actually, because it's it's right. there was an earlier one uh, called Crybaby. So this is which was uh, actually not entirely on the same theme, but yeah. So it's Crybaby Two. All right. So enjoy Crybaby Two. I heard somebody crying. We don't cry in the streets, do we? Laugh, argue, hang conversation as laundry on the line between points A and B, and even in despair, the boxed silence. But I heard somebody crying, the most private, most vulnerable of human sounds. And if we don't actually prey upon, we ignore the injured among us, stack tens upon thousands in camps, squats, tenements, tracked housing, the lights flickering, our empathy short-circuited but I heard somebody crying. And I followed down alleyways amidst those wanting to disappear and others broken. The crevice open in the back, the white hot filament in the throat, the eye stockets stuffed with filth, the mouth corralled by needles. I followed, disentangling the sound from that of bells ringing out the remaining hours of our divinity, or at least our memories, same thing. Oh. To see these hierarchies of regard and worth as broken ladders, not burned bridges, not part of a vexed diagram. And meanwhile, the monkeys waved us from the trees saying, come back, come back, you've gone too far. But I heard somebody crying, and I followed past the hundred evocative and revealing scents accompanying like ghosts the jubilant mask which passed before them. From Reveille to Requiem we stink. I try desperately not to stink. Never a whiff of the desperation beating on our skins, and this place knows. This place knows. The rain can be a shroud for such raw souls. The still mewling harlequin fetus interred in the heart of the city. I followed there. Through rooms parceling the air, Along the widened avenues, the brick-walled corridors, and the cutting edges always laid so close to the bleeding ones. I followed there, 
through the babel and squeak. The profound and profane tied of tongues tied and loosed his rope, binding bodies to their past, tethering them to their present, their who, the last thing they truly own, that and their gods, their only knowns, when each one a knot in the weave of this one heaving net. I heard somebody crying. A snapped twig, a turn for the worse, a final straw, a black mark, a forgotten thing. I heard somebody crying as I stood in the center of these grand schemes made irrelevant. Stood in the center. Sorry, no, screw that up. Sure. I heard somebody crying as I stood in the center of these grand schemes made irrelevant. Stood to center in great shame, made naked, lost to all reason. Fallen and unable to locate or even recognize its resonance in my own weeping cavity, I followed, and it has led me here. The third segment. Melanie, how you doing? I know, guys. I know. I know. It's real bad. It's real bad. I had the day from... I've been calling it hell adjacent. Right? Hell adjacent. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's how I've been calling today. But I'm here... We missed you. I'm late, but I'm here. Mm. And I did listen to the poems, and they're beautiful. Yeah. What's that line that just blew me away that was in your head for 10 years? Um, meanwhile, the monkeys waved at us from the trees, saying, come back, come back. You've gone too far. Oh, that oh. is like, you oh. did that poem at the Minute Slam, and I was just blown away I was like what that like inspired so many different things out of me I was like oh I want to write this I want to write that I want and I'm like how does one line do that it's, it's a chain you know I I find myself it, it's funny because like I was you know I, I was a performing poet for for years back home before I moved here and you know you do it for a while you know I did uh, political street theater and then moved into solo spoken word and you get a little full of yourself and you start thinking that you know everything and then you you know you move country like I did and you find a whole new group of poets and you learn new language you learn new cadences you you pick up new lines new ideas and, and as slang. much as yeah yeah <laughs> uh, as much as as you know I can maybe inspire other people people have done that for me you well, know you, I, I learn from, from everybody me. Like that line says so much to me and it's just, yeah, I'm going to be re-listening to that poem just for that line. Because we have, we have gone too far. You know, we've, got, yeah. we've, we've yeah. taken ourselves so far from our, uh, from our natures yeah. that, that we can easily forget who we are, yeah. you know, as human beings. I wanted to ask you, you are Raven, no last name. Is that a performance uh, decision? Like you are Raven, like Cher, like Beyonce or like you go by, you don't have a last name. Yeah, I legally got rid of it. Uh, about legally, really? I did. I, wow. I had my name legally changed. I, I used Raven uh, kind of in common for, for several years, and, and then I had it legally changed uh, just to avoid confusion. It's a big mess if you're carrying around, around two names. Yeah. But, um, and if you're from, if you're black and you're from the States, um, it's really hard to trace your history back uh, because, uh, you know, family records were not kept on slaves because you were trying to break up family units. You're trying to break up that, that sense of belonging. Um, and um, 
and I got rid of, of my surname because I realized that uh, as a European surname, that if I traced it back, it wouldn't lead back to my ancestors in Africa. It would most likely lead back to some family that owned my family. Yeah. And yeah. it seemed like an insult to carry it. So I just dropped it. That's what Malcolm X did. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's a typical sort of uh, um, nation of Islam thing to do, and uh, I uh, I would have liked to have taken a last name that that was from uh, you know where my family was from, or, or would have been you know like, like my family name, but in, in lieu of finding that, uh, you know, because it would be very difficult, I just decided I'll just go with Raven. And why Raven? Ooh, there's a story. I went through a very difficult period of about five years uh, in my 20s where uh, everything in my life turned upside down. Um, I was originally named after, after my grandfather on my mom's side, Big Joe Reed. My original name was, uh, was Joseph, but uh, it never belonged to me because my grandfather was such a hero in my mind. He was such a big figure um, that it always seemed borrowed. Um, it didn't belong to me. so. You know, my first name didn't belong to me, and my second name most certainly didn't belong to me, so it actually didn't mean much to uh, to completely get rid of it. Raven came during this whole period where, um, within the space of five years, that grandfather died. Uh, my younger sister died of, uh, of cancer uh, in her early 20s. Uh, my daughter was born, and about a year after she was born, uh, my marriage started falling apart, and... Um, my favorite uncle, who was uh, was an inspiration to me, um, went to prison. He actually uh, stabbed his girlfriend to death while he was high on crack. Um, and with all these things going on, uh, I started having these dreams in which ravens were coming to, to visit me. Um, it would either be a giant six-foot raven standing by the side of some wooded path, whispering in my ears I went by, or it would be this black bird shadow that flew over my head, swooped down and then swooped right into my chest and was waking me up nightly. And I finally took it as a sign. Um, at the same time, the raven populations in San Francisco were increasing. So I was seeing them when I was awake and I was seeing them when I was asleep. And, uh, and I took the bird's name for my own. And as I started looking into the science and the mythology of, uh, of ravens, I realized that, uh, that I'd found my true name. That, that I have so much in common with them. So, yeah. Um, there's this idea that, that our, our true names are the names that, that we're given. I've heard so many people say, I've had so many people ask me, what's your real name? As if the name that you're given is your real name. But if I were to accept a given name as my real name, I would, would have to accept a slave name, and that's not acceptable. Um, and sometimes our real names are the ones that we're given. There are plenty of people that are absolutely happy with, with the names that they're given. And sometimes our real names are, are the names that we find, or in case, in my case, the names that find us. Oh, that's beautiful. That is beautiful. Yeah. You do see that um, with trans people. They mm. have their dead names and their chosen names, and mm. that is who they are. Yeah. Which is beautiful. Yeah. And they get to choose their names. And I was chatting to... Um, a uh, newly out trans lady and uh, hearing her talk about how she chose her name and the meaning mm. behind it was so beautiful. Mm -hmm. That name belonged to her. Yeah. That, like that was always going to be her name. Yeah. Names are very important. Yeah. I, I do feel like uh, like I found my true name. Yeah. You know, I associated, um, you know, my old name with with a lot of pain. 
Yeah. You know, Joseph was the boy that, that, that got beaten severely, that was extremely sad and extremely frightened. Yeah. So it meant something for me to, to make a break with that. Yeah. I, on, I only thought about it because I've always known you as Raven, never actually questioned it. Yeah, um, un, until um, Aoife Hines wrote uh, a piece about First Fortnight, including um, your play Raven and the Crone. Mm. She included your Facebook full name. And that's what I thought your last name was. Everybody does. And it's because Facebook, you cannot sign up for Facebook unless you give them a surname. Yeah. But so your, what's your Facebook surname? Yeah, your chosen surname Afflecate. on Facebook is really interesting. Yeah, what, yeah. What is Afflecate? Afflecate is, is kind of a nickname for, for the trickster god Eshu um, oh. from Yoruba mythology. And it's, it's also a, it's a West African word that, that roughly translates to mean I've tricked you. I like that. Oh, I like so, that. The raven has tricked you. Yeah, yeah, so when people ask me for a last name, if it's nothing of, of much consequence, that's the one I give them. Wow. Yeah. Unfortunately, because it's now on Facebook, <laughs> a lot of people think that, that that's actually my surname. So I get booked as Raven off a Kete, and then I've got to call, you know, like, you know, <laughs> show promoters and go, yeah, actually, it's just it's, Raven. Yeah. Just Did you get that off of Facebook? No, dude. That's not, <laughs> so, yeah, typical of tricksters, you know, the trick always comes back to, to bite you. I love my tricksters, but, but tricksters get themselves into as much trouble as they get themselves out of. So... And speaking of uh, mixing mediums that we brought up earlier on in the podcast, mm. um, your spoken word play, you kind of described it as a musical, but instead of songs, it's poems. That poems and stories. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Uh, so tell us a little bit about Ro- Roven, Raven and the Crone. Raven and the Crone came out of a lot of the things that... Uh, that we've been talking about, uh, about how people look after each other, about um, about mental health. You know, there are a lot of serious mental health issues um, that people are dealing with in this country, all over the world, but but our focus is here in, in Ireland. And we wanted to do a play that uh, that spoke to those things, that took people into some, some dark places. I've also described it as a, as a madcap romp through the dark corners of our psyche. Um, and uh, but we wanted to do something that that took people through those dark places, but actually brought them out into something that was actually sort of uplifting. So in Raven and the Crone, um, Nicole Rourke, uh, who's an amazing storyteller, um, monologist and actress, um, uh, we play these two time travelers who um, who travel through time uh, uh, utilizing this, this device called the etherphone, which, uh, which allows them to hear people's pains, worries, and fears, and tells them where they need to go, where they're needed, in order to, to help people through poems and stories sort of grapple with these things. And uh, through the course of the play, they also discover some things about each other. There's a big reveal, um, which I won't give away in case you know, someone wants to go see it. Um, so it's about them and their relationship, and it's also about uh, it's about how how we as people just sort of sort of grapple with a lot of these things. I really hope you bring it on tour because I'm so sad to oh, have missed the tour. first yeah. run. It had an excellent run. Three days at the new theater, we absolutely packed the house and uh, and actually just just really moved some people. It's funny because when you live with with a piece for so long, and uh, you guys may be familiar with this, after a while you can't. Sometimes you can't tell. I don't know if this is good anymore. I don't know if this means anything. So to bring it in front of audiences and to get the response that we did yeah. was absolutely remarkable. I was so, so humbled and, and honored and, and moved by the response that it got. 
And is it, res- is it restricted to the theatre? Do you think you'll ever record it or turn it into something that can be kind of more easily distributed? You know, something... We actually hadn't considered that. Our first consideration has been actually trying to get enough funding to, to get it on tour. Right now, we're, we're sort of uh, sitting on, on looking for some funding so that we can go back into development and, uh, and really solidify some of it. You know, we had a three-day, uh, three-night run, and, uh, and all three nights, they were a bit uneven. All three nights were good, but we really wanted to just sort of like, like go back into rehearsals and, and do some rewrites and really just sort of solidify it so that we had a solid show that, that went the same way, you know, every night. And then the idea is to tour with it. Um, it could possibly work, you know, on film, but I think there's something really vital in making it a live experience. There's something about, uh, in this case, you know, using this medium to connect directly with people. Because part of the structure of the play is that toward the end of it, Raven and the Crone actually sort of gather up all people, uh, people's, you know, worries and fears. They actually write them down on pieces of paper and hand them up to us, and we destroy them. We actually take people's worries, fears, pains, and destroy them on stage. Oh, Melanie, so we need to go to this show. To, that's not something you could replicate on film or another medium. It has to be a live experience. Well, when you have uh, dates and venues, let us know. Listeners, Definitely tune will. in to Bainless and Bear. We will be promoting um, Raven and the Crone. Twitter, Facebook, everything. When Definitely will. I'm tour. psyched by it. It's a, it's a great little show. I'm really happy with it, really proud of it. It was the first time I'd ever attempted anything like that. You know, it's a it's a two hander that that runs about an hour long. And I'd done political street theater back home, but I'd never done anything with like this. And thanks to Nicole and uh, and our director Deirdre Malloy, who uh, also uh, directed Riot and uh, um, that one that Dagogo and uh, and Boy Child. Uh, F- Boy Child. She also did Boy Child. So we were in good hands. Yeah. And she she definitely taught me some things. You know, it was it was relearning. And in some cases, straight up learning uh, things about stagecraft that uh, that I never knew. Um, so it was a learning experience, and uh, and she was incredibly impatient with me, and, <laughs> and I've grown for it. So that is incredible. Uh, we are coming to the end of this episode, hmm. but before um, we say goodbye, we have two questions and, and a demand. 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 Intense. Yes. So, uh, Melanie, what is our first question? Right, what is our first... Yes, I, I remember, yeah. Um, if you were to be a pizza topping, yeah, what pizza, pizza topping, topping would you be? Oh, God. Um, and why? Oh, and why. Yeah, we want to know why. <laughs> why? The uh, there's two, actually. Two just came to mind. Um, squid. Squid? Oh, yeah, because nobody put squid, squid on pizza, and I just something what? cool about squid. I like. Cool. Do you guys like squid? It's so wiry. I actually don't like squid. See, that's why I like it. It's got that weird sort of like like rubbery, yeah. chewy sort of thing. Yeah, just be weird on no. uh, on a pizza. And that same pizza would also would also have tinned peaches. Tinned peaches. Yeah, because I love tinned peaches. What does oh. squid and tinned peaches? Gross. Tell us about just, you. Uh, um, Texture. Yeah, Texture, yeah, yeah, and I am actually very tactile. Yeah, I, I figured from your poetry. <laughs> <laughs> As a matter of fact, I, I, I'm so tactile. Sometimes it actually kind kind of kind of scares people. I will. Uh, I, <laughs> I wouldn't even get into it. I have I have asked to, you know, something. It comes down to the tongue, right? Yeah. Um, 
when we're kids, the reason we put so, thing, so many things in our mouths, the reason we have an oral fixation is because as kids, we have the inside of our mouths is very sensitive. You know, mm. the, the, the senses are really alive inside our mouths. And I never lost that. And sometimes, uh, you know, if someone's wearing a really interesting ring or, or there's a nice texture or something, I'll ask to lick it. Some, some ginger ales are too spicy for me. What? Some ginger ales are too spicy for me. Really? Yeah, mm. mouth's too sensitive. Yeah. So, Melanie, if you could be a pizza topping, what topping would you be and why? What are you I'm, feeling this week? I'm feeling like I, I just need something really, really comfortable. Aww. Something that will give me like a nice warm hug. So I'm thinking like a garlic butter base Ooh. with some chili flakes, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like really strong... Uh, taste as well so like just some garlic butter and some, some chili you know that's exactly what I need that's like my safe spot you know uh, safety yeah I'm, I'm feeling some crushed up antibiotics I'm, so <laughs> Ill. I'm not even kidding I'm so ill you should be so proud of me for lasting through this podcast so I will have well. no voice tomorrow <laughs> Okay. I like the Meds pizza though, just antibiotics. Yeah, and, and it's got to be gluten free. It's got to be gluten free. Our second question is if oh, you God. could have a superpower as the vigilante that you are, mm. what power would you have and why? Well, it's not really a power, but I'd like a big pair of fuck off big black wings. Oh, would. that would be so cool. I oh would. You would become the raven. Yeah, I've actually been collecting uh, corvid feathers, ravens, magpies, crows, because I'm actually going to make myself a pair of articulated wings someday that, that I could actually just sort of open up on stage at perfect moments. But as far as actually, honestly, superpowers, the, the power to, to just de-escalate people, to just make people... Stop, um, because a lot of people get this idea that that this whole vigilante idea, and I've had a friend of mine say this to me. Um, he said, so basically you want to go out in the streets and violate people's civil rights. I was like, no, that's not the point. Um, I don't want to go out and be part of a fight. Um, the whole idea behind it would be to defuse situations. Oh. So if I could defuse that with a word, that would be the power. Oh, I yeah. like that. Yeah, All I right. think we could do with a couple of those. Yeah, definitely. Um, um, Melissa, what would yours be? A uh, superpower for this week. You know, I we've done so many of these. We do these every, <laughs> every week, every and time. every week we have to have a new answer. And no, we don't. No, you don't. Well, pick, a, pick an old We favorite. should try to <laughs> try least. to be exciting. <laughs> um, I think my last one was uh, I wanted two of me, so one could sleep and one could be awake. So it'd be like a battery pack. Oh, version yeah, of yeah, me yeah. Uh, I still love that mm. um, right now I'm feeling I would like to control time Ooh. stand it still fast forward yeah. uh, rewind give me some of that yeah Yeah. what about you Melanie Hang is also very basic and comforting this week <laughs> um, I think you just need a big hug <laughs> yeah. I would love to be able to heal people Oh. you know mm. just boom yeah, you know, whether that's like physically or you know, sometimes someone just needs a little bit of spiritual healing just yeah. to feel a little bit better. Emotional mm-hmm. healing. I'd love to be able to do that for people. I, I'm emotionally fractured. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, our demand. Our demand. So usually we leave uh, the podcast off on some sort of happy story or a funny joke or something that'll just make everyone feel nice, cozy, and happy. You know. Yeah. So, do you have a story? Oh God, yeah. As a matter of fact, um, we had started talking about this earlier before we started recording, and um, 
um, Melissa had uh, had something said something about about me being a storyteller, but I honestly feel that that all poets are storytellers. My fact, like most of my favorite poets here are, are the ones who are who are storytellers. Um, I could name a few names, but but you know them all. Um, <laughs> and my grandmother was uh, was a great storyteller. She died about two years ago, and it was just shy of her hundred and first birthday. And in the last, she was the family historian. She held all of those stories she could open up any one of and she literally had like dozens of photo albums you could pick one of those off of a shelf shelf open it up to to any page point to any photo and she could tell you who was in that photo and she could tell you stories about them but in the last few years of her life she she went senile she started going demented so all of that all of that was started to be lost, but she would still occasionally sort of something would spark and she would remember a story. And one of the last times I was home, um, there were a couple of things. Uh, she had gotten really foul mouthed and my family were big weed smokers. So uh, they actually <laughs> finally started dosing the old lady with, uh, with uh, some THC um, to, to just get her high because it was calming her mind. She wasn't feeling any more pain. You can imagine being 100 years old. Mm-hmm. She had lived a life of, of pain. She was in constant pain, but she, was, she would always say, I'm so blessed. You know, she was a pure, she was a true Christian woman. She honestly lived it in a way that you don't see many people living it. Um, but so she got really foul mouthed when she got older and it took some funny turns. And I remember uh, I was over for her hundredth birthday the year before she died. And I was laying up in my aunt's place late night where she lived. And I hear from the bedroom, and I'd been warned about this. I hear from the bedroom, her calling out for my cousin, who's also living in the house, my cousin Kelly. And she's calling out, Kelly, Kelly, bring me my coffee, you lazy bitch, and make it hot. <laughs> and then it turns into sex sounds. Then she starts going, oh, oh, you do it so good. Make it hot, make it hot. She's 100 fucking years old. I'm sitting there in the, li- in the living room, the couch going, I don't want to hear this, I don't want to hear this. Um, and... And that same trip, we were sitting around, and suddenly she went into this mode of storytelling, and she remembered this story from when she was a kid, when she was really small, uh, when she was in kindergarten, and she started telling this story about this uh, about this kid in class who couldn't stop farting and how it was making everybody <laughs> laugh. But the way she was telling it, it was almost as if she was back there. And that happens to people, you know, who suffer from dementia. You know, they they suddenly think that they're back in, in an earlier time in their lives. And I got to the point where I started believing, and I do still almost honestly believe this, that people who suffer from dementia actually become unhinged in time. They're actually becoming time travelers. Oh, my God. They're mental time travelers. Their bodies are still there, but they're their minds have become unhinged from time and they're traveling and thinking of it that way i can't wait to be demented (laughs) i want to be a fucking time traveler on that i think it's time to say goodbye thank you raven (laughs) so much for joining us it has been such a pleasure thank you Melanie, thank you for joining us. I know, for the part <laughs> of this that I was here for. But honestly, thank you so much for coming on. And I'm sure everyone listening um, is just super grateful to have heard from you. And as usual, uh, we will have links in the description on our website, boundlessandbear.com, Facebook, Twitter, the usual places. Don't forget to, you know, rate, review, 
Um, like, on, share. Like, share, whether that's on Spotify, that Apple Podcasts, all of that kind of stuff. And don't forget that all of Raven's links will also be in the description as well. Um, we're going to leave you with Raven's third poem. Um, do you have a name for it? I do. It's called Fearful Symmetry. All right. Here is Fearful Symmetry. 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 Oh, damn it. Oh, I was like, nice Because it's about the Celtic tiger. Oh. You know, so I, I borrowed that line from Blake, tiger, tiger, burning bright in the oh. forest of the night. What a mortal hand or eye could frame this fearful symmetry. Right. Oh. Yeah. Okay. And it's really just, it, it's an angry rant after sort of going to the Celtic tiger and uh, and, and feeling like a lot of these bankers and, and all of these developers had, had robbed people of their dreams. I, I finally decided that it was time to say something about it. Right. Okay. Well, we're going to leave you with fearful symmetry. Bye, guys. Bye. We waited for the light to wear off so it wasn't so blinding. Waited for it all to become commonplace. For nothing more miraculous than intervention beef, the daily bread. Now we keep earthworms in our larder, eyes becoming vestigial, noses breaking the surface, turning up stones. Owl is waiting to turn us skins inside out, or fox making believe he is dying in order to get expensive gifts inviting the nearsighted to his dinner table. Ah, but sure, we had bricks, didn't we? Now only few stones and many birds. Swan taken off the menu. The crane dead. The magpie mocking from the wall. The raven and the wren in augury and the rook no early nest foreshadowing the thaw. Ah, but sure. We spun our straw into gold, didn't we? Sure, the elves cobbled all our shoes for us in the night while we slept, and that lovely shop in the mall? It stocked new clothes for emperors and couldn't keep them on the racks. Oh, it was all leprechaun chauffeured helicopters. It was carvery potatoes served up 40 different ways, and the ban marie's overflowed. We were so fucking in the chips. Red Bull and vodka spilled from our lips. And Sean said, get this. <laughs> Sean said, the world watched astonished. Us at the ragged end of the ball where the music slurs. From August fires, September's embers, October's ash. And we waited for the light to wear off so it wasn't so blinding. Waited for it all to become commonplace. And some of us waited long enough to forget ourselves. So you tell me, for what sake were kin forsaken? What ambitions dull for number numbers taken and waited upon, now come back affronted? Now return with the same coin you left with, the hank of hair and snowdrops pressed into a Bible. Now squatter on your own soil, digging out the hag, the dark tracks, the trench that such dreams are buried in. The slow sweat rivulet running long as the black turf gouge. The overstretched grave of a long death. The long winter's brittle liturgies come to no end of late and hours marked by rope, the bottle, and prayer. The landscape changes from sheep to cattle. Estates regress to farmland and its own attendant ghosts, the few lights making a debtor's constellation in a glass face, beggar stars for whom we cast such dim shadow. Oh, how grand was the music in those spheres of influence, but the novice will tell you that there is a wolf in every fiddle, and we saw it hidden in plain sight amongst the peacocks and clowns let to roam the halls of the Doyle. 
the Taoiseach emerging from his tiny jalopy, all wobble-wheeled and candy-colored, head of the nose-to-ass parade of 150 following the hush slap of flop shoes on the carpet, all waiting for the light to wear off so it wasn't blinding, all waiting for it to become commonplace, charmed by the gloss vague celebrity. The moneyed sprig climbing from famine to infamy, from coddle to ungodly molly-coddling. The flippity gibbets, the nouveau brummels, the fussy gussets and the cake face, all whinging about the blacks, the knackers and the gypsies, all shake their heads in a charismatic fervor reserved for shopping days and deny what the deity of the belly belies. Their hunger will tend to drastic sustenance, to roost and risk when fiscal viability demands sacrifice. And in the absence of faith, some took comfort in vice, till both bank and fever broke. With us backs against, caught smack between the paddywhackery and fuckwittery, shoring up the walls some, others beseeching, for God's sake, man, would you ever bring back the snakes? Oh, what we wouldn't give for a feckin' snake. At least you know what it is when you take it in. And Sean said the world watched astonished. But the condemned man will tell you that the best view is from the scaffolding, and Borges that the Baroque is the final stage in all art. So we fill our lamps with the oil wrung from our babies, and by that light, how far into the future can we see while waiting for the light to wear off so it isn't so blinding, waiting for it all to become commonplace? <laughs>